Good evening, church family. It's good to see you here tonight. Uh, as Brother Justin announced, we're going to be going through Numbers 1 through 10, and you may be thinking that that's crazy, and I may be thinking that's a little bit crazy now. Uh, however, I gave you the handouts. If you didn't get a handout, I apologize. I didn't print enough out, but I did send a church text just a few minutes ago with a link in it, so uh, if, if you didn't get a handout, you got a smartphone and click that link, you'll have the guide on your phone as well. Uh, the reason for the guide is because we're going to be covering a ton of details in a very short amount of time, so we're going to be flying, and I wanted you to have this to go back and reference in your own personal study, or you can use it as we go through it tonight. There will be more details on the outline than there will in the lesson. Um, but I, I hope that that will be helpful to you. I've worked more on that than the PowerPoint, so the PowerPoint will be somewhat crude compared to a lot of PowerPoints that I do, and there's going to be a lot of bullet points, which I'm not crazy about, but so that we can follow the line of thought and summarize these chapters, uh, I'm going to have a lot of bullet points. Now, I want to give you the reason why we're going through chapters 1 through 10 rather than going chapter, chapter, chapter. 1 through 10 is very tedious, and there's a lot of very intricate details about God's design and organization and order for Israel. And rather than have 10 tedious sermons, we'll just have one tedious sermon and just hit the highlights of a lot of this information. Now, what I don't want us to think is because it's tedious and intricate that it's not important. Because it's very important, it's going to help us set up the studies in the book of Numbers because when I suggested that we do numbers, I wanted to look at the stories in numbers and some of the challenges that the children of Israel went through in life, wandering through the wilderness, and how God dealt with those because there's great lessons to learn. And the first 10 chapters are not necessarily that, but they help set a foundation. So as Brother Monty mentioned, uh, in ancient times, the book was known as Wilderness. And why is it called the book of Numbers? Well, chapters 1 through 10 will give you a reason for why later on they called it the book of Numbers because there's a lot to do with Numbers. Now, where we're dealing with in these first 10 chapters is all around Sinai. Now, this is, this is the supposed location of Sinai in the mountains of Sinai down here on the bottom of the Sinai Peninsula that, as you can see, is bordered by the Red Sea on both sides. And so they've made their way from Egypt. From Egypt. They've gone across the Red Sea and made their way south through the wilderness of Sin, or Sin is actually how that's pronounced, even though it's spelled like our word, Sin, all the way down to the bottom of this peninsula where Mount Sinai is. And chapters 1 through 10 are going to be right here in the wilderness. They spent close to a year right here around Mount Sinai, and that's what we're going to be reading about tonight, or at least we're going to be talking about tonight. We're not going to do a ton of reading. We're going to have some reading, but obviously to cover 10 chapters, we can't do a ton of reading. So this book actually starts out with a census of God's people, and that's a very important thing for us to see as it's a fulfillment of prophecy, which we'll talk about in just a moment. But God orders the Israelites to take a census, numbering everyone in Israel who is able to go to war. Now that's everybody from 20 years and older. So no one from 20 and younger was able to go to war, and that's the numbering that we're going to see is the census of the warriors or the men that were able to be part of the army of Israel, as that's God's plan for them to go into Canaan and overthrow the Canaanites and take over the land. So one man, which is the head of his family from each tribe, was selected to stand with Moses and Aaron as they take the census. Now, 
I want you to think about the work that is done here for Moses, Eleazar, Ithamar, and 12 other men to census the 12 tribes of Israel and the Levites. And I'll, I'll explain why I say 12 tribes and the Levites in just a moment. That is a ton of work. So each tribe is counted and numbered in verses 20 to 43, and then a total of all 12 tribes is given. And I'll give you the total. I'm, we're not going to go through and take every tribal number, but I'll give you the, the total in just a moment. Now, why does this matter? It matters because God made a promise to Abraham. Brother Nathan talked about this in his Sunday morning lesson. God promised Abraham he would make him a great nation. Now, how many people went into Egypt when Joseph was second to Pharaoh? 70 people. 70 people. To, now, actually, 66 went into Egypt. There was already four there, Joseph, his wife, and his two sons. But there were 70 total uh, people that were related to Jacob or Abraham that went into Egypt. Now, how many came out? Numbers chapter 1, verse 45 and 46. So all who were numbered, the children of Israel, by their father's houses from 20 years and old and above, all who were able to go to war in Israel, all who were numbered were 603,550. 603,550 soldiers that started with 70 just a few hundred years before. I would say God kept his promise. He told Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. Well, here's a great nation. Now, how many people were there actually that came out? Well, we don't know. But let's just, let's just make a, a, a rough estimate and we'll just lowball the figure. Let's say that out of the 603,000 of the men that were 20 and above, that half of them had two kids. So that's another 600,000 people. And let's say that half of them had wives and half of them had mothers. Well, you're at about 1.8 million right there. That's probably a, a lowball estimate of how many people. That's a lot of people. Now, I was in a city in India that had 2 million people. It's the city of Kurnool. 2 million people, and they fit people in a small area. We're talking about this amount of people not being spread out over a large city, but in a very small area, what they call the camp or the congregation. That's a lot of people to deal with. And Moses and Aaron and, their, and his sons and these 12 men, they took a census of all these people. And that is a task in and of itself. Why would God make them do this? Because God is a God of arrangement and a God of order. And so he arranges the 12 tribes around the tabernacle in groups of three with their standards. And that's the King James Version of banner or a flag. So they all had their own flag and they had their flags stuck in the ground or they, or they had it placed somewhere to designate this is where our tribe belongs. And they placed them around the tabernacle with the tabernacle in the center of the encampment. So on the east side is Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. On the south side, Reuben, Simeon, and Gad. On the west side, Ephraim, Manasseh, and Benjamin. You notice Ephraim and Manasseh, these are the two sons of Joseph. There wasn't a tribe of Joseph, and there's not a tribe of Levi that's numbered in the census. So they make up two of the 12 tribes the sons of Joseph do. Then on the north side, Dan, Asher, and Naphtali. And so this is the order that God sets them up around the tabernacle, and we'll come back to that in just a moment. So chapter 3, so we're already trapped chapter 3. And yes, we're not skipping a lot of detail, we're just condensing it. Sons of Aaron are consecrated as priests. Now it mentions Nadab and Abihu's death here. It doesn't record that story. That's in Leviticus chapter 10 if you want to go read about that. But by this point, Nadab and Abihu, their uh, priesthood did not last long. 
uh, right after they were consecrated, they go into the temple and they burn incense. And you remember, they use strange fire and they're dead. So Aaron's got two sons that are still surviving. And these two sons are going to be the remaining priests. So there's Aaron, Eleazar, and Ithamar. Those are the three priests. And they're going to be very important characters in these first ten chapters uh, as they're going to be the head, if you will, of the tribe of Levi. So the sons of Aaron... Eleazar and Ithamar. The Levites, which were not included in the census, are now given their responsibilities in verses 5 through 10. So we'll talk about their responsibilities in a moment. But this is interesting. God declares right here in the middle of chapter 3 that the Levites are his. Now that's strange, isn't it? Aren't they all his? But he says that they're his as a substitute for the firstborn. If we go all the way back to Exodus we actually find out that God had designated the firstborn everything that opened the womb, and I'm not going to go into detail about what that means, but it's the first out of the womb. Every, every firstborn out of the womb, God said, I've redeemed them, they are mine. They're consecrated or they're set apart, they're special to me. And now we get here in Numbers and God says, okay, the firstborn are mine, but now I'm going to redeem Oh, the Levites, and they're going to be like the firstborn to me. They're going to be special. They're going to be mine. And that's probably hard to understand. It's hard for me to understand. But God is saying they're going to be special. That's the idea here. And so then the Levites are numbered. And they're arranged by family, and they're given exclusive responsibility that are different from all the men that were going to go and fight in the army. The Levites were not part of the army. They were going to go fight. God had a special purpose for them. So on the west side is the tribe of Gershon. And Gershon had 7,500, put an asterisk on that number. We're going to come back to that in just a moment. 7,500 men when they were counted. And they, this was their responsibilities. Their responsibility was taking care of the tabernacle, the tent with its covering, the screen for the door of the tabernacle. And that was their responsibility. Now, on the south side was the tribe of Kohath, or the sons of Kohath, or the Kohathites. 8,600 of them. <coughs> These were their designated responsibilities. They had to take care of the Ark of the Covenant, the table, the lampstand, the altars, the utensils of the sanctuary, the screen of the tabernacle, and also the work relating to all these various items. And ignore the word the, that doesn't belong there. Um, and so that was their responsibility, and we'll talk about what their responsibility was in this, uh, these various items in just a moment. On the north side was the tribe of Merari, or the, Mar- the Merariites, or Merarithites. I don't know which one is, is actually appropriate there, but 6,200 of them, and their responsibility was the boards of the tabernacle, the bars, the pillars, the sockets, the utensils, all the work relating to them, also the pillars, uh, the pillars, the court of the court, that's supposed to be of the court, with their sockets, pegs, and cords. So, Again, we're not going to spend a whole lot of time on this, but I just want you to see that God had three designations for the tribes uh, of Levi. They were in what we might call three sub-tribes, and they all had various responsibility. Because again, God is a God of order, a God of organization, a God of arranging. Now, also on the east side, a very small group of the tribe of Levi were Moses, Aaron, and his sons, Eleazar and Ithamar. And so they were keeping charge of the sanctuary to meet the needs of the children of Israel and to defend the tabernacle from outsiders. So that was their responsibility. Now, I'm not saying it was just those four men's responsibility if somebody came up to fight off an army, but they were responsible. And so as we get in, we're going to see that these 
four characters especially, they're, again, sort of the head of the tribe of Levi, at least in their authority and what they did. So, so we went through all that to get to this. Imagine this is the tabernacle, and this is somewhat of a crude illustration. Uh, but here in the center is the tabernacle, and this is the altar. This is the, the laver that's outside. And inside the holy place, the first section of the temple or the tabernacle, is the golden lampstand, the altar of incense, and then the table of showbread, which is also called the table of presence. And then here inside the most holy place was the Ark of the Covenant. And it faced the east, and on the east you had these three tribes, and then Moses and the priests. And over here, these three tribes are the Mariorites, or Mariorites. And on, these, uh, on this side, the, the, uh, the west side, you had these tribes, and you get the picture. This is how God arranged them out, out of the ta- uh, around the tabernacle. Now, what was the point? The tabernacle. That was the point. The point was that they would be surrounding God, who was going to be present within his dwelling place. And this was the center of his organization. And they're all organized around it with all their various jobs. What God has done is surrounded himself with a great army. A great army of his people. And also all these men who would be uh, doing service to God for these people that were surrounding his presence. And then when you get these numbers of the Levites, they total 22,000. Now... You don't have to be super good at math to look at these numbers and go, that's not 22,000, that's 22,300. So what's going on here? Because if you read later in the chapter, you're going to find out that as they begin to number, he says there was actually more of the firstborn than there were the Levites, 200 and I think 37 more, and the number is 22,237. And so this is an important number, and and. I'm bringing this up because some have pointed out, well, here's a contradiction in the Bible. Here's a contradiction. So what's going on here? Now, these are two Hebrew letters. Now, imagine these are handwritten on a manuscript by a scribe. Do you think you'd always know the difference? So I'll tell you what these two, these two letters represent. This one represents 500, and this one represents 200. And most scholars believe that somewhere in translation, when they numbered Gershon on the manuscript they thought it was 7500 and it should have been 7200 but they didn't know whether or not that was a five or a two because of the length of the same character now that's one theory I think that's the most plausible theory but if you actually took that number that they're suggesting it should be you get to 22,000 and it's and and somebody says well I can't believe you're even bringing that up look we got to be honest here But that doesn't cause me any pause. And I'll tell you why. Could you imagine that somebody was trying to falsify a God and they wrote a big long book trying to depict that there was some imaginary God out there and they were this tedious about the records and numbers and all that? That's ridiculous. So it gives me no pause that somebody somewhere went, yeah, I don't know whether that's a two or a five, but it looks more like a five and they put it down and we go, well, maybe they couldn't do math, but these were scribes and they just, they did their best. Whether it is or not, if you read what's in the text, it says there were 22,000 Levites. There were 22,237. You can correct me after services, the 237 is wrong. But there was just a little bit more firstborn. And those actually had to be redeemed so that they could be a substitute for the firstborn and be gods. And we'll get to that right here. So 
later in chapter 3, there was what was called the redemption of the firstborn that was transferred to the Levites. The firstborn were to be redeemed and set apart as special. This goes all the way back from Exodus chapter 13 when the Passover happened. Do you remember in the Passover that the death angel came through and killed all of the firstborn except for those who were marked or redeemed by the blood of a spotless lamb? There's some symbolism there, obviously. And this was in relation to that. And so... Uh, if you think about this, now you've got these Levites who are being redeemed. And what did they have to do? They had to pay a monetary price, but they didn't just have to do that. Later on, there's a bunch of sacrifices made. And God says, they're special to me. They're mine. And so in Numbers 3, 45, take the Levites instead of all the firstborn among the children of Israel and the livestock of the Levites instead of their livestock. The Levites shall be mine. I am the Lord. We'll come back to that because that's... Later in our summary, we're going to get more details about this situation. Okay, so when we get to chapter 4, uh, God then be begins then to designate the Levites' duties specifically. So we got this summary earlier that Kohath was over these things, and then Gershom was over these things, and so on. Now, when we get into chapter 4, this is where it gets real tedious, and we're seeing exactly what they were over. So Aaron, Eleazar, and Ithamar were set apart from the rest of the Levites. They were going to be special and do special things. They alone were allowed to handle the most holy things. They alone could touch the Ark of the Covenant. They could touch the, uh, the showbread table. They could touch the altar of incense and so on. They were allowed to touch those things, but no one else was. So they had a very special job because this tabernacle was going to be a mobile structure. It wasn't a, 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 a temple like what we see later in the, in the days of Solomon. This was a movable tabernacle or structure. And so God would come and he would he would have a, a cloud that would dwell over the tabernacle. And when that cloud would be lifted, they had to pack up everything and move. They had to pack up the whole temple. And so Aaron and Eleazar and Ithamar had a special job when they packed up that. And what they had to do is they had to take all these holy items, the holy things, and they had to physically touch them. And if you want to go through and read about that, that's great. It's, it's, it's in verses 5 through 14. They had to take special coverings and put this layer on first and this layer on second and then put this stuff on and then put another layer on. It was a very detailed process that God had them go through. And they had to do this and cover it up and then they had to put the poles in through the rings on all these items so that the sons of Kohath could then come in and move these items. But again, they were not allowed to touch these things. And so what Moses and Ithamar and Eleazar did was they prepared everything so that these men could come in and they could do their job because they were not sanctified to the point where they could touch these things. So Eleazar was actually designated to oversee what the sons of Kohath were doing. So think of him, I don't know how else to put it, as the foreman or the supervisor to the Kohathites or the sons of Kohath. Numbers chapter 4 and 15 says this, And when Aaron and his sons had finished covering the sanctuary and all the furnishings of the sanctuary, when the camp is set to go, in other words, when we're ready to move everything, then the sons of Kohath shall come to carry them. But they shall not touch any holy thing lest they die. These are the things in the tabernacle, the meeting, which the sons of Kohath are to carry. So he said, don't let them touch anything. In fact, there's another verse where he says, you don't even let them come in the tabernacle when you're in there and you're taking down these things and covering them lest they die. So they were not even supposed to be there when Moses, or I'm sorry, when Aaron, Eleazar, and Ithamar were preparing all these items. So then it tells us later in the chapter, in verses 21 and 28, that the Gershonites, 
Again, these were the things that they were in charge of. And guess what? Ithamar was in charge of them. And he was their supervisor, if you will, to make sure that all these things got done. And then you've got the Marirites, which again, they're responsible for the structural things uh, of the temple and the pillars and everything. And Ithamar is also to oversee the sons of Mar. So he's got a big job. So we've got Aaron and we've got uh, Ithamar and Eleazar. And as these guys are doing their job, they're walking around. They're making sure everything's done right. Again, God is a God of order. He's a God of arrangement. And, and he has it designated exactly how he wants it done to make sure it gets done correctly. And so as we go through this book later, you're going to see they, they put down the tabernacle. They pack up and they move. They put down the tab. They had to do this all the time. Every time God decided they were going to move, they had to, do, they had to go through this job. And so then the Kohathites are numbered again. But this time it's not the entire tribe. God said, I want you to go back and take a census. But this time I only want you to census those that are 30 to 50. You might say, what in the world's going on here? That was the age, that was the window of their life that they could actually do this job. And so it was only the Kohathites that were 30 to 50 that were going to be carrying the most holy items. It was only the Gershonites, 30 to 50 and so on. So this number, instead of 22,000, you've got 8,580 of that 22,000 that are actually going to be doing this job that they're designed to do. Again, God is a God of order. And he's a very specific God, isn't he? About what he wants done and who he wants doing those things. Okay, so we're going to jump out of the numbers game for a little bit. And through the next few chapters, we're going to see some things that are related to uh, the tabernacle itself and the camp or the congregation. In chapter 5, we have what's called the law of the unclean. And the Lord comes and he speaks to Moses and he says, Command the children of Israel that they put out of the camp every leper... Everyone who has a discharge and whoever becomes defiled by a corpse. Uh, you shall put out both male and female. So he makes no gender designation here. He says whether male or female, if they've got any of these things going on, I want you to put them outside of the camp. That they may not defile their camps in the midst of which I dwell. And the children of Israel did so and put them outside the camp as the Lord spoke to Moses. So the children of Israel did. Now this was done for two reasons. Uh, one was practical. You know, obviously you don't want a leper in the middle of your camp that, because it's a very contagious disease. Uh, the one with the, the deal with the discharge, these things are all actually identified in detail. And you notice, leprosy was a big deal. There are two entire chapters in Leviticus, long chapters, over 100 verses that deal with leprosy and, and what you do and how you diagnose leprosy and, and the process of... of um, Medically clearing a leper once he comes in, if you will. This law of discharge, well, I'm not going to go into detail about that, but if your body had a discharge, they were going to also say, hey, look, we're going to put you outside the camp. We don't know if it's something to be worried about, but eventually they could be medically cleared if that was to stop. The law of the corpse is a very broad law. Um, if There were certain unclean animals that if you came into contact, even accidentally came in contact with a an unclean animal's carcass, you were unclean for a certain amount of time. And there was a purification process that you had to go through to be restored back to the congregation. Another one was if you touched a, a dead person. And there was actually exemptions for this one if it was your father, your mother, your son, your daughter, and then when there was even close kinsmen that you could actually come in contact with once they died. Again, probably having to do with funerals and things like that. But, as we're going to see, there were exceptions to that 
same law about the law of the corpse even when you came in contact with a dead body. But what was this about? God says, I want to protect the camp for one thing. We don't want the whole army being destroyed by some disease. But secondly, I'm a holy God. And you dwell in the midst of a holy God. And I don't want anything unclean in my presence because I'm a holy God. I'm a pure God. And so there were other reasons why one might be deemed as unclean that would put them out of the congregation or the camp. So this one's interesting. It just in a few verses, he talks about the law of restitution. And essentially, this is probably dealing with thievery, most likely, where someone is an offender and there's an offended, and you have to pay back the full price of what you took once you're discovered, plus a 20% penalty. Now, he even says in certain circumstances, that person may not even be surviving anymore. So so maybe you think, well, you're, well, I'm in the clear then. I don't have to pay that person. But he says, no, you actually have to pay their kinsman. And if their kinsman isn't surviving, then you still have to pay the penalty of 120%, but you're going to pay it to the Levites. And someone may think, well, that's not justice at all, because why would a Levite get the price? I, I, I believe that this actually shows us a very important thing, and this is something applicable to us. Sometimes it's not about the offended getting justice. It's about the offender learning a lesson. And it's just as important that this person who's been caught have to repay or give restitution than it is even for the offended to receive something back. Because he deserves to pay restitution. And this was God's justice upon him. And it also gave the Levites a little bit of opportunity to have a little bit more success. Because again, they don't work. They don't work. They rely on the people to supply their needs as they're working inside of the temple. Okay, then we deal with the law of jealousy. And I will tell you, this one's peculiar. Um, so 20 verses of this chapter, or 21 verses actually this chapter, if you count verse 11 with that. Uh, this was actually identifying how to exonerate or prosecute a suspected cheating wife. Yes, you read that correctly. Um, and so what would happen was if... There was a man that suspected that his wife was with another man, but he couldn't prove it, and there were no witnesses. This was the process. And so if he was feeling jealousy and he was feeling like she's been unfaithful to him, he would have to take her to the priest. They would go through this process of, of taking this holy water and mixing it with dust, and he would make all these declarations, and he would write something down, and he would pour the water on it, and then he'd make her drink the water. Now, that's a very short summary. You can read it. It's very detailed. And what would happen? Well, if she was a cheating wife, her belly would swell up, and it says her thigh would rot. What happened if she wasn't a cheating wife? Nothing. Someone says, that sounds very superstitious. It's not superstitious. God told him to do this, and God was in control of the results. God knew whether or not they were actually an unfaithful wife, and they weren't. And so he's saying, you put that in my hands. If the nobody witnessed it, I will make the judgment. Now, strange as that may sound... It happens, right? It happens. People suspect. They surmise. Maybe there's circumstantial evidence, and, and people do that. So God, he puts this law into place, and he says, here's what to do. If the husband's jealous, then go through this process. <coughs> okay, chapter 6 deals with the Nazarite vow. And you probably heard of the Nazarite vow, or at least of a Nazarite. Now, that's not Nazarene like Jesus. This is a different word here, Nazarite. It's actually the word Nazir, which some of y'all have met Brother Nazir from uh, India. The word Nazir means separated. That's what it means, separated or consecrated, we might say. 
And so the vow of a Nazarite was a voluntary vow that someone could take where they would say, I'm going to set myself apart for God. So what happened? Well, there was a process. Number one, you couldn't cut your hair. Couldn't cut your hair as long as you were in that, to, under that vow. Uh, another thing you couldn't do is drink or eat anything that was made with grapes. Uh, I don't know why, but that was God's law. He said they, they're not allowed to do anything that involves grapes, probably to keep them from drinking alcohol. But they weren't even allowed to eat grapes. And so that was a part of that Nazarite vow. Well, we actually see this in action in the book of Judges with Samson. And Samson is one of the exceptions uh, as well as the prophet Samuel, they didn't volunteer for this. They were volunteered uh, by God um, in, in the case of Samson. And in the case of Samuel, his mother prayed to God for a son, and she volunteered him as an Nazarite. So he really didn't get a say in the matter. Uh, but Samson, it says, and I've got five and seven up here, For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son, and no razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. Now verse 7. And he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. Now drink no wine or similar drink, nor eat anything unclean. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. And so this is later on, but the law was given back here in the book of Numbers about the Nazarite vow. Now, one reason I'm bringing this up is because sometimes we read Bible stories and we make wrong conclusions and, and I'll tell you, I had this as a wrong conclusion for years and years and years. I thought that what made Samson strong was his hair. Because that's kind of how the story is told, right? He gets his hair cut off and all of a sudden he becomes weak. So his strength is in his hair. No, his strength is not in his hair. Listen to what he actually told Delilah. He told her all his heart and said to her, No razor has ever come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If I am shaven, then my strength will leave me. And I shall become weak and be like any other man. His hair wasn't in his strength. His hair was in the fact that he had lived his entire life designated special to God. And this undid that. Now, if you want to go read about the, the vow of a Nazarite later, if they, were to cut, if they cut their hair or they came in contact with something dead or they drank wine, there was a long process of sacrifices they had to make before they could be restored back. It was a very serious thing. And so it wasn't something that people did flippantly. Because if you took the vow of a Nazarite, you're kind of in it. And, and once you break it, you're going to have to go through a, a, a pretty tedious process, a very uncomfortable process of making sacrifices to God. So I think that that really keeps people from just going, well, I'm going to take a Nazarite vow. And, and, you know, and they decide three days later, well, I decided I don't want to do that. Well, tough luck. You've got a lot of things that God has commanded you to do. So... So when people took this vow voluntarily, it was obvious there was a serious thing happening here. So at the end of number six is Aaron's blessing. And you're going to recognize this because we sing this. We, or at least we used to sing this quite a bit. Uh, this is where Moses is instructed to tell Aaron to bless the people. And he says, this is how you're going to bless them. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace so they shall put my name on the children of Israel, and I will bless them. What, what's that to do with putting their name on them? Well, the word Lord is a rendition of what we would call Jehovah, the name of God. And so this is a blessing that is, is relaying the name of God upon his people. And it seems somewhat random to have this in this particular spot, because it's right out of the Nazarite vow. 
And then it jumps right into Moses anointing the tabernacle. But nevertheless, this is where that comes from, uh, the song that we sing. So Moses then anoints the tabernacle. And if you want to understand what that means, this was instruction given in Exodus chapter 40. And so Moses was actually going to be the one, not Aaron, not Eleazar, Ithamar, but Moses was going to be the one to go in and take all the items of the tabernacle and the tabernacle itself, and he was going to anoint it with oil. And again, this is to consecrate, if you notice, consecrate it, set it apart. And that, all that word consecrate means is make holy. And holy just means consecrate or make separate or separate out as clean and pure and, and undefiled. And so this is what Moses does now. One reason why we're doing summarization here is because we're going to get into a whole lot of details in some of these chapters we probably don't want to read through, uh, and they could be summarized in just a couple minutes. So after Moses gets done with anointing the temple, then people begin to bring offerings. And the first thing that we see here is that the leaders of the families, those 12 men that were designated out of the tribes, they bring six carts and 12 oxen. Seems strange, right? Well, then they don't really say anything, and God tells, he says, accept these. Accept this as a gift, and he says, what we're going to do with it is Gershon's going to get two of these carts and four of these oxen. Merari's going to receive four carts and eight oxen, and then Kohath, how many do you think he received? Well, if you can do math real quick, you'll notice there's none left. So why was it that Merari got a double portion, Gershon only got half a portion, and Kohath gets none? Numbers chapter 7, verse 9. But he says, but to the sons of Kohath he gave none, because theirs was the service of the holy things, which they carried on their shoulders. A little bit more foreshadowing here. What did he say in Numbers? The Kohathites are not allowed to use oxen and carts to move the holy items. they got to carry them. And then what do we see in 1 Chronicles 13? We see Uzzah... And Ohio designated to do what? Take the Ark of the Covenant on an oxen cart. And what happened? He ends up touching it. And God smites him. He kills him. And you know what people say? Man, that's harsh. Is it though? What did God tell them? He said, you make sure those Kohathites do not touch what is holy or they will die. You know what they did? They touched it. God is full of integrity and truth. He didn't say, well, you know, his, his intentions were good. And listen, we don't even know if Uzzah was a Kohathite. But I'll tell you what it did. It sent David scrambling going, I don't know how the ark's supposed to come to me. Well, it was written some 500 years or so before they tried to move that ark. God said, the Kohathites don't get to use oxen. Now, that made things easier, wouldn't it? It made things a lot easier. But that wasn't God's design. He designed them to bear a burden as they carried these holy items. That was the Kohathites' lot. So after this, and again, I say we get into some tedious details, there's close to 80 verses here that all talk about the 12 days of offering. And we could read it all, and I'll tell you what you'd read. You'd read somebody's name and then the exact same list of these same items over and over. So what we're going to do is just say each one of these 12 each one of these 12 uh, leaders or patriarchs of their tribe brought these same, uh, uh, these same items and they brought the same weight. So the list is identical. But the whole chapter details, he brought this and then it details it. He brought this and he details it. But they all brought a grain offering, they brought an incense offering, a burnt offering, and then a sin offering. Each one brought that. And the purpose of this was to consecrate the altar, not the tabernacle, 
but the altar. And so this altar is going to be used to make these various sacrifices, and each tribe had to make a sacrifice at the beginning. All, each one of the 12 tribes did. <coughs> so that's a very quick summary of 80 verses. <clears throat> so at the very end of the chapter, the last verse of this chapter, Moses hears God talk to him from the Ark of the Covenant. And that shouldn't have been a surprise because earlier God had promised him that once the tabernacle's built and all these things are done, I'm going to dwell between the two cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant and I will begin to speak with you. And, and that's what you're seeing up here in Exodus chapter 25 is, is once they're done, they get the tabernacle set up. Now think about this. God has talked to Moses, right? He's already talked to Moses. He's talked to him on the mountain. He's talked to him. He's given him instructions. But what he didn't do was speak to him from the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. That didn't happen until they got the tabernacle done, they got it all anointed, and then they consecrated the altar. Then God spoke. Once he was ready to dwell there, once it was just his way, God said, okay, now I can be present inside the tabernacle because I'm holy and I'm waiting until everything that I require gets done. Then I'll dwell there. And that's what happened. And then he spoke. Then you get into the Levitical consecration and age limits. And then some of these are going to vary a little bit. Uh, Moses tells Aaron how to arrange the lampstand. That's verses 1 through 4. And then the Levites are washed and consecrated. They're separated for the service of the tabernacle. And then God reiterates that they are his in place of the firstborn. So he, he, he goes back to what he had said earlier in chapter 3. Now these age limits for those that would work inside the tabernacle were a little bit broader. We had 30 to 50 for the Kohathites, the Gershonites, and the Merariites. And then whoever's going to be working inside the tabernacle, they start five years earlier. And they can work from 25 to 50, and that's the age limit. They can't start sooner, they can't go after that. That's the limit that God put for them to serve in the tabernacle. Now what are these men going to be doing in the tabernacle? They're going to be making offerings to God. That's their point. And so, there's, so they're consecrated to do that now. Before, they weren't even allowed to come in the tabernacle. Now certain men are being set apart to come into the tabernacle and offer incense and, and go through the showbread uh, ritual, if you will, and also uh, operate with the oil that's inside of the, the tabernacle. And then Israel finally keeps another Passover. Now you say, whoa, whoa, what's going on here? Okay, so they kept the Passover in Egypt. Then they left Egypt, and three months after they left Egypt, they got to Sinai, and they've been here ever since. And a year hasn't passed since they had the first Passover. And now they come back to the first month of the year, and on the 14th day of the first month of the year, they're going to have a Passover. And so that's what's going on here. They're going to have the second Passover right here around Sinai. Now this is interesting. There's some men that they came in contact with a dead body. And I, I don't know the circumstances. Maybe it was accidental, maybe they did it on purpose. It seems like it's accidental just from reading the text. And they're concerned because they want to take the Passover. And so they come in, they say, hey, look, we've, and I'm paraphrasing here, look, we've touched a dead body and, and we've become defiled by a corpse. Why aren't we going to be able to keep uh, the, the offering and, and eat the Passover? And so Moses doesn't know, so he talks to God and he and God says, okay, here's my stipulations. And so God actually says this. He says, speak to the children of Israel, saying, if any one of you um, or your posterity is unclean because of a corpse or is far away on a journey, he may still keep the Lord's Passover. On the 14th day of the second month at twilight, he may keep it. They shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. So God says, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to postpone the Passover for a month. 
if they, if, they, if they really are unclean or they're not there where they can take the Passover, and this would go throughout generations of people not being able to be in Jerusalem, he says they can do it on this designated day, on the 14th day of the second month. And so God, he made an exception for certain people. But then he gets real serious. He says, but the man that is clean and is not on a journey and ceases to keep the Passover, that same person shall be cut off from among his people because he did not bring the offering of the Lord at his appointed time that man shall bear his sin. You know what God isn't? He's not a person who accepts our excuses when they're really not excuses. He's not that way. He said, look, if they got a legitimate excuse for not doing what I've told them to because they, they've defiled themselves somehow or they're just not able to be there, I get that and I'm going to allow that. But if they're just lying and they just don't want to do what I said, they're going to bear their sin because God is not a God of excuses. So then we see the cloud covering the tabernacle. And as long as the cloud was over the tabernacle, they were to stay there. And he says, as soon as it lifts, then you pack it up and you go. Now, whether it be two days, a month, or a year that the cloud remained above the tabernacle, you might say, a year, that's a long time to sit. Well, that word actually, year, is somewhat subject to interpretation. It's actually the same Greek, uh, Hebrew word that's right here. It's the word yom, which means a day, but one is two days and the other one is just many days. And it's actually translated days in the Young's literal and a longer period of time in the ESV. So year is not a literal translation of that. So don't get hung up on that they stayed in one place for a year around the tabernacle. He's just saying whatever, whatever time period the cloud is over, you stay there. Once the cloud lifts, you pack up and go. Then we have the trumpets. And we're going to go through this really fast. Uh, but God told certain people to sound trumpets to communicate with the entire congregation. Now, you may think, why in the world are they using trumpets? Because if you've got over a million people in a small area without the technology that we do now to have loudspeakers, then you've got to have some way to communicate with a lot of people at one time. So they had certain sounds that they would sound off, and there were two trumpets. And when both of those trumpets were sounded, the entire congregation would gather at the door of the tabernacle. So they're all arranged around. They'd hear both trumpets. They'd go, oh, it's time to go to the tabernacle, and they'd come. He says if they only hear one of those trumpets blown, then only the heads of the tribe would gather. So only 12 people would then come. Uh, there with Moses, Aaron, Ithamar, and Eleazar. When the trumpet was blown in a certain manner, it would alarm the people, and the east camps were to begin their journey. Just the east camp. They were going to move in camps one at a time. Remember, those camps were three tribes apiece. So there are four camps made up of three tribes apiece. Once the trumpet was blown in a certain way, it would alarm the people. The east camp would begin to move. And when the trumpet alarm sounded the second time, the south side would begin their journey. And so east, south, and they would move. I guess it would be the other way for you all. So like that, east, south. <laughs> so after that, there's nothing said about the third and fourth, but it's inferred by the last statement that that would be a continuous process until everybody left. Now, this was interesting to me. The Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament, actually included this verse, whereas the Masoretic, which is what our King James is translated from, didn't include it. But if you notice, it would actually say in the Septuagint that the third time would prompt the west side and that the fourth time would alarm the north to march, which makes sense that they would do that in succession. So the gathering sound was different from the advance sound. There were two different noises that were being made. And the, then there was also a command to blow the trumpet before they would go to battle. 
<coughs> and a command to blow the trumpet in the day of gladness, feast, beginning of months, and over burnt offerings, sacrifices, and peace offerings. So a lot of trumpets being sounded. Guess what you see in the New Testament? Trumpets sounding at very important events, such as the coming back of the Messiah. And what, what's God going to do when Jesus comes back? Gather his people. And so there's going to be a trumpet sound. And so, again, there's symbolism in a lot of these things that are more spiritual in nature than they just were physical to Israel. But there was physical, practical purposes for God telling them to communicate in this way. Okay, so there was an order to the march. And, and again, the first three tribes were to go. And then the tabernacles to be taken down while this one tribe is evacuating the area. So again, lots of people are moving. It's not just like, you know, 10 people walk off and then 10 more people. You've been to an airport, right? And you stand there and they go, zone one, zone two, zone three, zone four. Okay, that's usually what? 500 people max? So take that, multiply it. You've got hundreds of thousands of people that are moving. It's going to take a minute. And so while these three tribes are moving, the tabernacle begins to be taken down and Gershon and Merari set out behind those first tribes. So there's a gap between that front army and where they're at with all these things of the tabernacle. And then another army is right behind them to protect them and box them in. Then the Kohathites are to set out with all the holy things. And there's a little side note here in the scripture that I don't have up here. But after it says that the Kohathites are to set out and it, it says when they get there, the temple will already be built. And so... Again, it's going to take a minute for, these, for the gaps to get to where they're going. And by the time the Kohathites arrive, God expects the tabernacle to already be erected by the Gershonites and the Mariarites. Then Ephraim, Manasseh, and Benjamin, and then finally Dan, which is said to be the rear guard of the camp, and Asher and Naphtali. And so again, God is a God of order. And here we are again with 17 verses of God saying, here's who's to go and when they're to go. All right, we're winding down and closing, I promise you. Okay, Hobab is mentioned at the end of this chapter, and Hobab is said to be the son of Ruel the Midianite, Moses' father-in-law. And if you're much of a student of Scripture, that'll make your radar go up, because you say Hobab was not the father-in-law of Moses, Jethro was. But then you go, well, wait, no, Jethro wasn't the father-in-law of Moses, Ruel was. Because if you go back to Exodus, Ruel was actually the father-in-law of Moses. Well, who was the father-in-law of Moses? Ruel was. So why does Jethro and Hobab also given the name the father-in-law of Moses? Well, here again, Jethro, Exodus 3. Okay, so here's the thing about Hebrew words. Sometimes they don't have a specific designation, so they just take a shot. And the word that's used here that's translated father-in-law, this is the same word in all three instances, is also translated join an affinity, Make marriages, mother-in-law, and son-in-law, because it literally just means in-law or related by marriage. And so the, the most common belief is, if you look at this, well, obviously Hobab is said to be the son of Ruel, which we know is Moses' father-in-law, so it's his brother-in-law, not his father-in-law. And it's also been said that Jethro was not his father-in-law, but also his brother-in-law who just happened to bring Zipporah from their home to where Moses was and look around and say, hey, you're not doing this right. You should be doing it this way. So again, clarifying some things that people say, well, that's a contradiction. What is in English? But it's not in the Hebrew. And the Hebrew, again, was not a specific designation father-in-law, but just in-law. Okay, so we're closing right here on the, the journey to Paran. So they leave, the cloud lifts, and they leave. And they go three days, and they go to the, to the wilderness of Paran, which is where we'll pick up in chapter 11. The Ark of the Covenant is out in front. And that's really interesting. 
Everywhere they go, the Ark of the Covenant goes out. God is leading his people. Remember, that's where God is dwelling. God's leading his people, and the Ark is out front. And at the end of this chapter, chapter 10, Moses does this. He cries out to God, and it says, Whenever the Ark set out, Moses said, Rise up, O Lord, let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. Why? Because God is out in front. And then it says, When the Ark of the Covenant rested, Moses said, Return, O Lord, to the many thousands of Israel. So what is Moses, what is this about? Moses recognizes that everything that's happening to them is dependent upon God's presence and his provisions. Whether or not they're protected as they're going out, that's all in God's hands. Whether or not they're going to get everybody back and God's going to dwell with Israel, that's all in God's hands. So we'll close there tonight. I appreciate your patience. We went a little long tonight, and I, I knew we would just a little bit with 10 chapters. Uh, but I hope this gives us an understanding of what these people have gone through and the order that God set forth before we get into the complaining and the moaning and the rebellion of Israel and what causes them to be set on a course for destruction. Because God loves his people. But you know, there's times when, when God's people begin to doubt God's provisions or they get malcontent with God's provisions and they begin to murmur and complain. I'm like that sometimes, right? We get that way. So we can learn a lot from Israel as we go through this series of numbers. Uh, we're going to offer the invitation of Jesus Christ at this time. If you have any need at all, we ask you to come forward and have a seat as we stand together and we sing the song that's been selected.